Good morning, Southwinds. It is so good to see you today. And before we dive into our message, there's a couple of things I would like to share with you by way of reminder. It is only today, two weeks from grand opening. Are you excited? Amen. Well, there's so much happening, so much going on around here at Southwinds, and I hope that you are praying uh, for everything that's happening every day, that God will just bring it all together and that we'll just have an incredible, incredible day. I want to remind you of a couple things with that. Um, we are providing these invite cards that have been around for a few weeks. Uh, there's still many more of them that you can pick up and ha- hand out, invite your friends. Invite people you meet, different places in the community, that they would just be part of this. We want as many people as possible uh, to experience the excitement of this day uh, with us. also want to be, uh, remind you that uh, we're going to be having a reception between the services, and uh, you'll want to be there for that. If you're coming to the second service, it's just going to be a great time to commemorate. And then as part of this, which has led up to this uh, very great day, we have been um, on the next-gen journey uh, for almost three years now. And it's been an incredible journey together. And I just want to report to you, to date, we have received uh, $2,171,265. And we just praise God. We want to thank uh, each of you for your generosity in giving uh, uh, to our next-gen spiritual initiative. That is what made, has made this new uh, building a possibility. And I also want to encourage you that we would finish strong all the way through the end of this season so that we can begin this new season of life as a church family in a very uh, strong and and positive way as we continue to serve our communities, Tracy and Mountain House and Lathrop. Well, today we are beginning a brand new series of messages, and it is called Unstoppable. And the idea for this series comes from, in part, um, a love that I have for the ocean. Many of you share that I know with me. And one of the things I'm fascinated with uh, is the very large wave breaks that occur in different parts of the world, like this one in Nazar, Portugal. And this is a place where waves can break uh, in incredible ways. You can kind of see in this picture Uh, this guy surfing down the face of this wave, they have documented waves as high as 80 feet. And there are people there who who report uh, that the waves have gotten as large as 100 feet. I mean, just try to conceive of a wave that that is that large. But it's not just on the other side of the Atlantic. What's kind of incredible is not too far from us is one of the, the greatest wave breaks in all the world. And it's just north of Half Moon Bay. It's called Mavericks. And some of you have actually been there. Some of you are aware of what happens there. Whenever the waves get big enough, the conditions are right, the the call goes out to this elite group of large wave surfers all around the world. And they have 48 hours to get from wherever they are to here to surf this this break. Waves at... uh, Mavericks are routinely 25 feet, and sometimes they are breaking as large as 60 feet. And one of the incredible things about this is that when these waves break, they actually move the needle on a seismometer. Let's think about that, a wave that crashes down and makes the seismometer move. I mean, that is some power. And waves like this make me think about the power of the God who created them, the power of the God who brought them into existence. And they make me think about how when God creates a wave, nothing really can stop it. This new series, uh, which is going to lead us into our, our church's new season, is going to be about learning to catch God's waves. And so for the next few weeks, we're we're going to be looking at some very important passages of Scripture, which will help us to understand better what it's going to take for us as a church, Southwinds Church, to be an unstoppable force in our communities for God's glory and also for our good. We're going to begin today uh, with the thing that must come before everything else. And we find this in Mark chapter 12 verses 28 through 34, and I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to this passage. Uh, This passage gives us what is commonly called the great commandment. 
And the first thing an unstoppable church must do is love God first. Love God first. Everything begins with loving God. And maybe a better way to say it is loving God first is everything because without this, nothing else really matters. Not our doctrinal orthodoxy, not our well-thought-out and well-executed strategies, not our music, not our casual, friendly, welcoming environment. If we are not loving God, we will always miss God's way. So I just want to ask you as we get started this morning a real simple question. Don't answer it too quickly. Do you love God? Do you love God? Also, is your love for God growing? Or possibly, is your love for God somehow being diminished or somehow being surpassed by your love for maybe other people or maybe other things? Let's read this passage together. Mark 12, verses 28 to 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right, which must have been a huge relief to Jesus. (laughs) You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So let's set the context here. As Mark chapter 12 opens, Jesus has just come in to Jerusalem. He's one week away from the cross, seven days from being crucified. All of the religious leaders are are trying to trap him. They are determined to kill him, and it's like they're all lining up to have a shot at taking him down, trying to trap him and get him to say something that that will get him executed. So the the teachers of the law and the elders question him toward the end of chapter 11, but they can't trip him up. And so as chapter 12 opens, some Pharisees and some Herodians, they give it a shot, but they fail. And then some Sadducees kind of take a whack, take a swing. And it's sort of like everyone take a turn, everyone take a shot. Maybe you'll get him. But every time Jesus answers their questions perfectly. Evidently, as this is going on, one of these teachers of the law sort of steps back and says, you know, he's really giving amazing, awesome answers, such dumb questions. Maybe we ought to kind of get off this trap Jesus thing for a minute and listen. There's there's some stuff that I actually want to know. And I think that's why verse 28 says this teacher saw Jesus gave a good answer. And so he asked his question, Which commandment is the most important of all? Because he really wanted to know. I mean, how do I please God? That's a huge question. You agree? Well, Jesus points him to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. The Hebrew people called this the Shema, which means to hear. And they recited it twice every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And Jesus said, loving God is the greatest commandment. That's the greatest thing you can do. What did you do this week? What did you do yesterday? You know, maybe most of what we do is okay. But we can do a lot of good things and miss the greatest thing. You see, no matter what you get done in your life, in a day or a week or a month, if you don't get loving God done, you're not getting the greatest thing done. I mean, here's the tragic thing. Some of us, like some of them, we know this command. 
We can recite this command maybe, but we're not actually living this command out in our daily lives. I want to try to answer just two questions today. They're very simple questions to ask. They're pretty complex to try to answer. Why is loving God first the greatest commandment? And then how do you love God? How do you do it? So here's the first one. Write these things down on your notes. Why is loving God the greatest commandment? I'm going to give you three answers today. This is not exhaustive. It'll give us a start on it. Uh, But first of all, because God is most worthy. Because he's most worthy, he's most worthy of our love. And again, each person who is here this morning has a capacity to love, to give and receive love. And every day you spend that capacity on something. Like you say, I love my my wife, my family. That's great. That's good. You say, I love my job. There's nothing wrong with that. You say, I love baseball. You're a very wise person. You say, oh, I love my hobbies. I I love shopping. That could be good. That could be bad. You say, I love the Raiders. That's just wrong. (laughs) But here's the bottom line. Every day you spin down your capacity to love. And at the end of the day, if you have not loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you've wasted your capacity to love on something lesser. See, God is most worthy of our love because he is greater and he is better than anything. No one is more worthy of our love. I love the scriptures that that say, kind of like that song we sang as we opened this service, who is like you, O God? And this happens over and over in the Old Testament. Who is like you? And the answer always comes back, no one. And I just want to kind of see how we can do with this today. So I'm going to read the scripture and then I'm going to ask a question. You're going to give the answer. You think we can do that? So, Exodus 15, 11, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Who is like you, O Lord? And the answer is no one. Psalm 35, 10, my whole being will exclaim, who is like you, O Lord? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them, the poor and needy from those who rob them. Who is like you, O Lord? Answer, no one. Psalm 71, 19, you have two more chances. <laughs> Your righteousness reaches to the skies, O God, you who have done great things. Who, O Lord, is like you? So who is like you, O Lord? No one. No one. one more shot. Let's do it good. Psalm 89, 8, O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. Who is like you, O Lord? Let it say it. No, no one. No one. Just think about this. The supreme Utter worthiness of God. And then think about all the trivial things to which we often give our affections. See, we are to love God with everything because God alone is most worthy. Second, why is loving God the greatest commandment? Because loving God gives us the most benefit. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. And I wish I had words to describe how much God loves you. It is like the the greatest discovery that any human being could ever make to, to see that God loves you. The God of the universe loves every person in this room. You may hear that, and you may find yourself thinking, well, you don't know my life. You don't know the things that I've done. And if you think that, I want to tell you, you are so wrong. Totally independent of your behavior, God, out of his mercy and grace, loves you, and he has set his love on you. He has chosen to love you because he loves you. Do you know that his gaze has never wandered from you from the moment he first set his eyes on you? You are always on his mind. You are always on his heart. The Bible says that even when we lie down, God's eyes are on us. He knows all of our thoughts. He knows everything in our hearts, and he loves us, every single one of us. You say, I don't sense that. Well, maybe, but until you open your heart to God's love, until you begin to explore and dive into what it means for you to love God, until you begin to seek to love God with all your heart, you're never going to really understand and comprehend the love that God has 
for you. Maybe you say, well, Mike, you know, I have to be honest. I'm th- hearing this and thinking that it kind of sounds a little selfish to say we should love God because it benefits us. Shouldn't we just be focusing on others? Actually, that's not what the Bible says. Great quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, when God offers to us the ultimate human experience, which is a love relationship with him, it is not selfish to go after that. See, he has made us in in such a way that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him, as Augustine said. The greatest soul satisfaction is in loving God who loves us perfectly. And when we turn away from that and we try to satisfy ourselves with less than that, we always suffer. John Piper, in his book, God's Passion for His Glory, says this, the pursuit of our soul's satisfaction, our joy and delight and happiness is not sin. See, it is not sin to do that. Sin is pursuing happiness where no lasting satisfaction can be found. See, it's not wrong to seek soul satisfaction in the one who made you and the one who loves you, the one who made you in such a way that you will never be satisfied until you are satisfied in him. Look at Jeremiah 2.13. It says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. See, sin is trying to quench our unquenchable soul thirst anywhere but in God. It is not sin to pursue the satisfaction that God created us to desire that can only be found in him. That's why he created us. That's our purpose. And sin is when we try to quench that unquenchable soul thirst anywhere but in God. More subtly, and some of us need to hear this, sin is pursuing satisfaction in the general right direction, but doing so with lukewarm, half-hearted affections. See, in other words, not pursuing God with the passion he deserves. God is worthy of our highest affection and our greatest love, and we, praise God, get the benefit from that. Amen? Third, why is this his greatest commandment? Well, the answer is because this commandment is the most difficult. I mean, isn't that right? <laughs> I mean, we, we, we think about this and we realize how challenging this is. In part, it's because loving what you see and loving what you can touch, that's the easiest thing to do compared to loving the one that you cannot see, that you must love by faith. Loving God with genuine, full-hearted devotion is not easy. I want you to write this down. As I explain what I'm talking about here, to love God is to delight in the beauty of all his perfections, knowing him as he truly is and delighting in that knowledge. Now, there are two key words there. To love God is to know him and then to delight in that knowledge of him. Now, I, I highlight this because most of us tend to lean one direction or the other. Some Christians, they, they delight in a God that they don't really know. Some know a lot about God, but don't really delight in him. But the Bible says both are necessary. Here's what I'm talking about. Some of us, and this may be some of you think about it, some of us kind of, we come to church and all we really want is we just want to feel the light in God. And it's like, oh, I'm not really interested in any complicated doctrinal stuff. I just want to have an experience with God. I just want to feel something. I want to feel God's presence. I want a spiritual experience. But how can you possibly fully delight in a God that you don't really understand, that you don't really know? And then some of us, 
Some of us are on the other side. We, we, we know all about God, and we've read some books, and we've listened to a lot of sermons, and we've, we've listened to some theology, and we've memorized some verses, but there's really no delight in him. It's just kind of all head knowledge, and that's a tragedy as well. See, here's, here's where true power is. It, it's in both knowing God more and delighting in who he truly is. And you need both. The power is in both. It's light and heat. It's truth aflame, knowing and delighting. That's when you're truly loving God. See, we want to know God. We want to always be expanding our understanding of who he is to be thinking greater and greater thoughts about God at the same time also delighting in him. God is most glorified when we know him And then when we delight in what we know, do you understand? Now, this balance is not an easy thing. It's kind of why so many churches tend to fall to one side or to the other. But we want both because that's what the Bible teaches. That's what we seek around here. That's what I want for you. That's what I hope you want for yourself and what you want for this church. Both. Loving God is the greatest commandment. But you're probably kind of thinking right now, well, how do I do this? I mean, how do I flesh this out of my life? And that's the second thing we want to look. How do I love God? And Jesus spells this out for us really in verse 30. You've already read it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Four ways. And we're going to unpack these. And you should know ahead of time there's some overlap between these concepts. And you should also know that the the, the ideas that are embedded in the Greek words that we're going to look at are not always exactly the same as the English words used to translate them. But here's the point overall that you need to keep in mind as we dive into this. Four words, these four terms cover, here's the four words, all that we are. This is about loving God with all that we are, everything about us. So Jesus says first that we are to love God, he says, with all our hearts. And this is talking about my desire for God. Now, the Greek word here is cardia. You probably instantly recognize we get words like cardiac, cardiologist uh, from this. And we tend to think of the word heart primarily in terms of emotion. That's the way we use it today. But in the Bible, heart is a far more comprehensive term. And what Jesus is referring to here is the core of our existence, the source of of all of our thoughts and words and actions. In other words, our hearts are who we are. Our hearts are who we are. Now, Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And our hearts are revealed by our desires. Like, Like nothing else, Do you understand this? Our desires demonstrate who we are. So what do you want? What do you desire? One of the ways you can kind of begin to understand the true thing that's the answer to that is what do you dream about? When when you have some downtime and your thoughts can kind of wander, where do your fantasies go? The things you wish you could do if you had the, the resources or the ability or the time uh, this week, I, I looked it up. The current Powerball jackpot is $215 million. This is sermon research. Um, so my question is, if you won and you could have anything you want, what instantly comes to your mind? See, if you think first and only of material things, what does that tell you about your desires? Or if you find yourself thinking, well, that could be nice, but... I really know that having a lot of earthly things is not what's going to satisfy me. I mean, have you gotten to the place where you know that when you desire God more than anything else, that's what is most satisfying. He is better than anything else. Now, I just told you that loving God is the greatest command because God is most worthy. The Bible tells us that God is more glorious, more beautiful, that he is more to be desired than anyone or anything else in the world. Just think about this. How do you know you fall in love with someone? How do you fall in love with someone? Well, it happens when you decide that that person will bring joy and happiness 
and pleasure to your life. In other words, you fall in love with someone when they become desirable to you, right? The essence of sin is preferring other people or other things above God, desiring them more than you desire God. The essence of loving God is desiring God more than you desire anyone or anything else. So to love God with all of our hearts is about our desires. We need to become more and more like the people we see in the Psalms, the people who write the Psalms. Listen to just a few passages that we find in the book of Psalms. Psalm 63, 1 through 4 says, You are my God, I worship you. In my heart I long for you as I would long for a stream in a scorching desert. I have seen your power and your glory in the place of worship. Your love means more than life to me. And I praise you. As long as I live, I will pray to you. Psalm 84, 1 and 2 says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Psalm 73, 25 and 26 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, growing in love for God means growing in our desires for God. And and growing in our desires for God means that we are desiring him more and more. More than other things. More than other people. Loving God first. Second phrase Jesus gives us, we are to love God with all our minds. This is about my delight in God. So here's a question. Uh, What do you think of when you hear the word soul? Um, Anyone out there like honestly thinking uh, Aretha Franklin? (laughs) Well, the word soul does refer primarily to our emotions and it tells us that God actually wants us to grow in our delight in him, and that involves emotions. In Psalm 103, the psalmist says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. He's talking to himself. He's talking to his soul. It's like he's trying to fire up his worship. Hey, soul, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The psalmist is, is pleading as it were, with his own self, with the seed of his emotions, that he wouldn't just know things about God, but that he would be moved with passion about the things that he knew. And sometimes we have to do that. You ever talk to your soul? Sometimes you need to fire your soul up. Sometimes you need to talk to yourself. And if, if we, here's the point I want you to see, if, if we never have feelings for God, if there are never in our lives, tears of joy over his goodness. If there is no passion, earnest passion for his will to be done in this dark world, if there is no sadness ever over our own sin and failures, if there is no delight in his word, if this never happens in our lives, if we never feel for God, then we are not loving him with our soul. Now, when when some of us, I think, think about loving God, we think, pretty exclusively of things like John 14, 21, where Jesus says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And obedience is an integral part of loving God, but it is not enough. Just doing your duty of obeying God is not all that it means to love God. I'll give you an analogy, and it's a a wedding anniversary. Mine is on December 21st, and last year Dan and I celebrated our 33rd wedding anniversary. Suppose on that day I I brought her 33 long-stem roses, this beautiful bouquet. I take them in the house. She sees them. I give her the roses, and she says, Oh, Mike, they're so beautiful. Thank you so much. She gives me a big hug, a big kiss, and... And then suppose I like hold up my hand and say, no problem, don't mention it, it's just my duty. <laughs> so what happens next? 
Well, not much more at my house that night. Someone might say, well, well, isn't the exercise of duty a noble thing? I mean, don't we honor those that we dutifully serve? And the answer is not much. Not if there's no heart in it. Dutiful roses are a contradiction in terms. And all God's ladies said, just in case you guys don't get it, you know. It's like if I am not moved by a spontaneous affection for Dana as a person, then roses do not honor her. In fact, they belittle her. I mean, they're just this kind of very thin covering for the fact that she does not have the worth or beauty in my eyes to kindle my delight, that all I can muster up is this kind of calculated expression of marital duty. It's like if I take her out for the evening and we go out on an a date for our anniversary, and she asked me while we're out, why do you do this? The, the answer that honors her most is because nothing makes me happier than to be with you. Here's what I'm driving at, friends. If, if all you ever do is obey God out of duty, your love for him is woefully short of what the Bible calls us to Now, I understand we don't always feel the light. That is true, no question. But when we are in that place, we should keep obeying out of duty, if that's all we have at the moment. But we shouldn't be satisfied to stay there. We should repent of that and ask God to kindle anew our desires for him. There is so much more. I want to give you a command to obey. And this is a verse you, you know, many of you, but you may not have ever thought about it as a command. It's Psalm 37, 4. Maybe you know it already. It says this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Have you ever read that as a command? Most of us think, well, that's a promise. If I delight myself, God will give me the desires of my heart. But that word delight is a command. Are you obeying that command? Are you obeying that command? I want you to hear the delight in Psalm 36, verses 7 through 9. The psalmist writes, How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Loving God means we delight in him. Third, we're to love God, Jesus says, with all of our minds. And this is talking about my development in knowing God. I want to ask you another question. Thinking about these four things we're talking about, which of these four is the most important? How would you answer that? Well, I'll give you the right answer. The answer is none of them. None of them is more important than the others. They're all equally important. And the reason I bring that up is I think this is one that most of us would tend to put toward the bottom of the four. Uh, I think a lot of times we, we elevate one or the other uh, over the others. And that's because usually our personalities, our makeup tend in one direction or the other. This especially happens in our day with loving God with our minds. Let me ask it this, another question this way. I, I wonder how many of us have ever grieved because we don't love God with our minds. I wonder how many of you have ever thought that I need to love God with my mind and I'm not doing that, so that sin that I need to repent of. Has that ever even entered your mind? I wonder how many of us are thinking right now, you know, Pastor Mike, I think you're mixing two things together that don't go together, spirituality and intellect. They, they, they just don't go together. They're not the same thing. How many of us think the Christian life is all about the spiritual and not about the mind? Now, if any of those thoughts are part of your thinking, and I know they are part of some of our thinking, then what you have succumbed to is this unbiblical mode of thinking that is, that is rampant, not only in churches, but really all across our culture at large. And this is not a new thing. Many observers of American culture have commented for years about the pervasive anti-intellectualism in our society. We don't value thinking as a general rule. Have you, you noticed this? 
one of the ways I'll, I'll prove this to you, and you'll all recognize this, I think. I, I even do this sometimes myself. But if you ask someone what they think about something, you know, I want, you know will you share with me your thoughts about this? What are you thinking about this? They will often respond, we've all done this well, I feel that. So when we're sharing our thoughts, we use the word feel. Because emotions in our culture right now are at the forefront of everything, right? You recognize this, don't you? I mean, you know, it's all about emotions. It's all about feeling. And this has kind of come into even the church. Uh, We are just this entertainment-dominated culture. And we have trained ourselves, and this is true about many of us, to to need entertaining all the time. And as a result... Many of us are so easily bored. We can't focus. There was a recent study done by Nielsen. I looked it up this week, just doing some research. The average American adult spends over, are you ready, 11 hours every day watching, reading, listening to, or interacting with media. That's up from nine hours, 32 minutes, four years ago. And I know what some of you are thinking. I don't do that. It's kind of an interesting thing. Every time I share stats like this, everybody goes, I don't do that. I don't know who these people are that that always do this. And here's the reality. Most of us do these things way more than we think. And if you say, well, I only spend nine hours a day doing that. Oh, good for you. (laughs) You should be proud of yourself. Well, whatever it is, I know it's a struggle for all of us. This study breaks down just to, so you have some facts. This includes four hours, 46 minutes a day watching TV. And I know none of you do that, but you know somebody who does. Uh, three hours, 48 minutes a day on smartphones, tablets, and computers. Now, some of you, it's like six hours and 48 minutes a day there. But here's the thing. I, I also looked up something that I couldn't find. I, I looked up stats, and I couldn't find any stats on how much the average Christian reads their Bible every day. But my guess, I don't know what the stats are, my guess is it's pretty far south of 11 hours a day, right? And even if in your life it's an one hour a day, which most people, and myself included, would, would consider serious time in God's Word, that would be a good thing. When you put that alongside 11 hours of screen time, what, what does it tell us about our love for God? I'm just asking questions. Some of you are kind of wondering right now, you know, Pastor Mike, aren't you like making a mountain out of a molehill? I mean, what's the big deal, really? Because you kind of think, well, that's what we pay you to do. (laughs) That's why we have scholars and theologians, the people that write the books and stuff. And I'm not into reading or I'm not into studying. I'm more into the practical side of life. I want to be real clear. I do not believe we're all supposed to be the same. And it's true, and this is okay. Some people do like to read more than others, and some people are more interested in intellectual issues more than others. That is okay. But here's what is true. According to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we all have a duty to love God with our minds. If you don't like to read, fine. But how are you loving God with your mind? You better figure out another way to do it. Because it's a sin if you don't. Jesus commands you to do it. Why is it that so few of us take this duty seriously? Why is it that so few of us ever think that it's a sin to not use our minds, not use our intellect to learn more about God and about God's world? Why is that? Now, I have found sometimes people that try to come up with biblical support uh, for their personal anti-intellectualism. Sometimes people use a verse like Proverbs 3, 5. And they'll say, Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. They say, look, it says here we're not to lean on our understanding. This intellectual stuff cannot be that important. But may I point out to you that it says lean not on your own understanding. It does not say use not your understanding. Sometimes people bring up 1 Corinthians 8, 1, which says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. But Paul, 
if you've read Paul, you would really know this. He's not rejecting knowledge, just a wrong attitude about knowledge. And the proper response to his warning is humility, not ignorance. In addition, for every knowledgeable person who is arrogant and proud, there is also an unknowledgeable person who is defensive and proud as a cover-up for their lack of knowledge. See, arrogance is not possessed solely by people who have developed their reasoning abilities. There's a, an old story, it's a true story. John Wesley, you know, the founder of the Methodist church, this is back in the 1700s. He was a powerful preacher, a very effective evangelist, but he was also an extremely intelligent man, a great scholar. He was skilled not only in foreign languages like Latin, but he could handle the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And uh, one day, a woman challenged him and said to him, God does not need your learning, John Wesley. And he quickly responded, Madam, you are exactly right. But may I remind you that he does not need your ignorance either. See, the key insight here, again, loving God with all your mind is a command. It's not an option. There are no escape clauses here for people who say, well, I'm just not that smart, or I'm just not that educated, or I, I just don't like to read and study. Too many of us rank the heart or soul above the mind, but Jesus commands us to love God with each part of our being and to elevate one over the other is to denigrate one of God's most precious and gracious gifts to us. And may I be pointed, it is all too often simply a rationalization for our intellectual laziness. We don't like to think because thinking requires work. And we need to remember maybe that laziness is a sin, even if it's mental laziness. Loving with our God with our minds actually is very practical. You know, more than once as a pastor, I have talked to someone who is going through tragedy and their lives are crumbling because they've been shaken by the earthquakes of like death or disease. And I've realized as I've talked to them that at the root, it's not so much that this tragedy they're facing is overwhelming. It is more that they have chosen never to think great thoughts of God. And in this moment, all they have to face what's happening in their life is this tiny concept of God that has never been nurtured, never been built up, and it is not sufficient to handle the deep problems of life. See, if you will not embrace with your mind the, the greatness of God and allow God over time to become greater and greater in your eyes, then it is only a matter of time until something comes into your life that is far bigger, and it may devastate you. It may overwhelm your faith. See, it's not that God is small, but we must allow him to be all that he has revealed himself to be, and that will not come into our minds except uh, except that we open our minds and we work hard to think about who he is. Think great thoughts about God. So let us embrace the words of Jesus this morning. How do we love God? With our heart, with our soul, with our mind, and then finally, with our strength. And this is about my determination to love God. Now, here the picture is of physical capacity, each day using our strength to pursue something. And here's the question. Once again, what will you spend your strength on? There are a lot of things we need to spend our strength on, but if we're not doing the greatest thing. Now, you probably know that in Greek, the, you've heard that the word for love is agape. Uh, the Hebrew word for love is less familiar. It's ahev. But in both of these languages, it's an interesting thing. The word for love is not primarily about feeling. It primarily describes an act of the will. It primarily describes a determined, dedicated choice. And in the Bible, yes, love does involve feelings, but it's always feelings that are driven by decision, driven by choices. And so if you're the kind of person who's into action, then maybe you're going to love this part of Jesus' command. Loving God with all your strength means simply, I am doing what God wants done. Loving God with all your strength is actually where loving him with your heart, your soul, and your mind meets the world. Do you know that some of us think sometimes that 
it's enough to like feel like we love God and to think of, that we love God and then we don't really have to do any more. And this part of the command tells us that there is more. In fact, the Bible tells us that there is a deceptive enemy of doing and the deceptive enemy of doing is just listening. Are you just listening this morning? Or are you going to do something with what God tells you? James 1.22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. You say, oh, that makes sense to me. I think I get it. Here's the picture. Is there anything else? Well, Jesus actually continues on from these four things. And he says, you love God, but then what? And he tells us there's a second commandment. And it's actually not second in importance. It's actually second as an illustration of what's first. In other words, if you really want to know what it looks like to love God, if you really want to know if you really love God, then the litmus test is, do you love other people? We see this very clearly in the book of 1 John. John says over and over again, if you say you love God, but you don't love other people, you're lying, you're fooling yourself, you're deceiving yourself. In fact, 1 John says that because God loves us, we ought to love each other, that this is the main outward indication that what is inside is actually true. So how do I get started? How do I begin to apply this? I want you to go back to the text and notice that Jesus said uh, this to the the scribe who asked this question. He said uh, that Jesus had given the right answer. He said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Not far from the kingdom of God. Let me ask you if you remember this. When we were kids, uh, we used to say, Close only counts in, yeah, it's, some of you know that better than any Bible verses, right? We, it's kind of, we, just, we know that one, right? We've heard that. Well, that's the only time close is good enough. It's not good enough here. And Jesus says to this man, you're not far from the kingdom of God, but he says you're not in it. And this tells us that loving God um, is what you do in the kingdom, but it's not what you do to get in the kingdom. And so if you're outside the kingdom, you need to get in the kingdom first. Jesus says, this is how you do it. We, we find this in John 1, 12. Yet to all who received him, have you received him? He gave the right to all who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. So loving God is what you do in the family. Receiving Christ personally is what brings you into the family. You turn from your sin. You repent of your sin. You put your trust in Jesus Christ. You look to his cross, the cross, his death there, to be the forgiveness for your sins. You embrace that. That's how it begins. That's how you step into the kingdom. Once you're in the kingdom, how you get started with loving God is summed up in that word, obedience. Again, John 14, 21 says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. So how do you obey Jesus? I'm gonna close real quickly with eight ways you can do this. And there's so many more, but this will just get you some things to work on. Here's the first one. Write this down. You build reminders into your life. And the best way to do that is to memorize scripture. Uh, Maybe write some verses on a note card And then you put those verses where you'll see them often, like your bathroom mirror or or maybe in your car's visor or maybe on your computer at work. You say, oh, yeah, I've heard of that before, putting verses different places. That's kind of dumb. Where'd you get that idea, Pastor Mike? Uh, From the Bible? (laughs) Actually, you go back to Deuteronomy 6 and read after the Shema, you get to verses 7. And uh, Jesus says, you're to teach these things to your children. And then verse 8 says, you you are to bind them as a sign on your head. (laughs) Well, I'm not saying you need to stick verses on your forehead, but I'll tell you this. Maybe you need to put your verse card in a place that you have a hard time loving God. Maybe that is on your computer. Maybe that is in your car. I have a hard time loving God in my car. Just ask my wife. Maybe you want to put it in your kitchen. You need to put reminders where you will see them regularly of what the greatest thing is. Second, practice the discipline of silence. You say, well, I don't like to be silent. That's why you need to be silent. (laughs) Some of you have to have noise all the time, right? 
And I'm just telling you, if that's you, it's a sign of something unsettled in your soul. You don't like it when it's quiet. And I'll tell you the reason why. There's some stuff going on in your heart and in your mind, and you don't want to pay attention to it. You don't want to face it. And you need to be still so that God can do a work that he only does in silence. You need to get quiet so you can love God. Uh, third follows right along with that. Set aside extended times for God, times where you just meet with him and express your love to him. You know, it's good to spend 15 minutes every day maybe reading God's word and praying briefly, but there are times where you need to get a, alone with him for a couple of hours and just not take any phone calls, not answer any emails, just spend time with God. Number four, tell someone how much you love God. Ever done that? Just walk up to somebody sometime and say, you know, I really love God. You say, well, I think I'm weird. That's all right. Just tell them. Express that. Number five, do a secret act of service. You, you love someone else in, in God's name. You know, find a meet and you need it. You keep it secret. You just do it to the Lord. Number six, ask someone if they love God. You ever done that? Hey, I have a question for you. Do you love God? They probably won't know what to say, but that's all right. Maybe that'll open a door and you can tell them how you love God and why you love God and how good he is and how great he is and how much he's done for you. And who knows, God may open a door for you to share the gospel with them. Number seven, pray and tell God you love him. You should say that to God regularly. God, I love you. Just express it to him. And then number eight, the last one, worship with abandon. You know, when we're, we're worshiping together, really sing. I mean, like sing so loud you make someone mad. Do that sometime. <laughs> it's okay. You know, just give your heart to the Lord in worship and tell him by your singing that you love him. I mean, the Bible says make a joyful what? Noise, okay? You can make a joyful noise to the Lord. Let it out. So, there's so much more we could talk about, but that's enough for today. Let us, South Winds, love the Lord our God with all our hearts, and with all our souls, and with all our minds, and with all our strength. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Would you bow for prayer?